Well, this morning we're returning to our study of God's Word, and we are continuing to worship God by hearing His truth. And so we come here to Luke chapter 7 and verses 18 through 35. It is a rather lengthy section that we are going to be in, and certainly you fully understand because of that that there's no way we're going to get through it today. Of course we're not going to get through it today. We don't want to ever run through Scripture, do we? Not that we can't take larger chunks of Scripture and try to assimilate what is being taught there through that, but but really when it comes to the things of the Word of God, we want to take our time, and that's what we try to do. And so this is another lengthy portion of Luke's narrative to us. However, we have to remember that Luke is cataloging for us the exact truth concerning Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he doing that? So that we might know with certainty the things that we have been taught about Jesus. Right? So each and every time that I come to another section in the Gospel of Luke, I think of our beloved brother who has been long past Theophilus, whom Luke is writing to in chapter 1, and he is telling him the truth concerning our Savior Jesus Christ. That is very curious to me. It's a very curious reality. In other words, why would we need to have things verified? That's the idea, right? I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so that you'll have the things that you've been taught about Jesus with certainty in your mind. You'll know the exact truth is the terminology Luke uses. That's very curious to me. Aren't the things that we have been taught about Jesus true already? Aren't they true? Aren't they fact? And of course, we would resoundingly say yes. Yes, they are. They are all true. But isn't it also true that bound up in our humanity is the reality of being perplexed? being challenged, the the perplexities of our minds, things that we wonder about that are not so clear. Things that we might at times even doubt. You ever had trouble in your faith? Struggle in your faith with some of the things you read in Scripture, some of the things you've heard about? We're not talking about doubt in such a way as if we no longer believe those things. The things that we have been taught, we know they're true, but it's a doubt in a perplexed way. A doubt in a perplexed way. In other words, we know that it's true, and yet we are perplexed as to the plan. We are perplexed as to the timeline of what we've heard. It's certainly true when you come to some of the theological Uh, doctrines that we know to be true and right. There are certainly perplexing things and challenging things to our faith when it comes to eschatology, the things of the last times. There are things that actually at times we are rather confused about. That's obvious by all the different ways in which people who claim to know Christ view things in Scripture and come out with all kinds of bizarre ways of understanding it. But it happens in other ways. It happens with God's redemptive plan and how God is carrying out His redemptive plan. When is Christ coming? When is the judgment going to happen? 
We have perplexities about these kinds of things. And all that we hear our Savior of our Savior, we, we take it by faith. Everything we've heard about Jesus Christ, we, we just take it by faith. That simply means that we believe it to be true. We believe it to be true that faith is not reckless, beloved. That kind of faith is not foolish faith. It is not blind faith that some people might try to say. Oh, that's just blind faith. That's ridiculousness. No, it is rational. It is full of sight. Why? Because of the one who gave it to us is faithful. It would be foolish if it was given to us by man, but it hasn't been given to us by man. It has been given to us by a sovereign God who is faithful. So all of what is said is bound up in the character and nature of God himself. If it were not true, then it would not be believable because God would not be who he is. And so we rest upon the words of Scripture, particularly the words of Hebrews 11 and verse 1, right? About faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we have an assurance of those things and the promises of God and what He has told us, and we have a conviction. Even though we do not see them, we live by them. Then why is it sometimes we have doubt? Why is it sometimes we have doubt? Why is it that our faith seems to waver? Why is it that even the strongest of Christians can have times when it seems as if their faith is not faith at all? Truth be told, there are times in our Christian lives when we have a perplexed faith. It is a perplexed, challenged faith. And while we may not like that, and we may be surprised at that, know this morning as we sit here this very day, God is not surprised. God is not surprised, and He does not give up on us simply because we are perplexed. In fact, He lovingly and graciously reminds us and tells us that even though we are perplexed, continue to trust me. That's what he tells us. Continue to trust me. And that is what we find in the beginning of our text this morning here in Luke chapter 7. What we see here is perplexed faith. Perplexed faith. And interestingly enough, it is in one who seemingly ought not to be perplexed at all. But he is. Follow along as I read for us. Beginning in verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him about these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, 
he, that is Jesus, cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind, and he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Blind receive, receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now you can stop right there. We don't, we don't really need to read any farther up to this point. This is the only place we're going to get to this morning. Just these first few verses that I read. And it seems rather shocking that we would find John the Baptist in this somewhat spiritual dilemma that's going on in his heart that is challenging him in his faith. Uh, don't, don't try to make some human attempt at, at saying, well, this isn't really John's issue. This was the issue with the guys that he sent because John really wanted them to understand who Jesus was. So John is sending these guys there. No, it isn't, it isn't the disciples of John that are having this crisis, this dilemma of their faith, this perplexity going on in their mind and heart. This is John. The text clearly indicates that these are John's disciples that he sends. It is John who calls them to himself because John wants to dispatch them for a specific purpose. And so it is John who sends them to Jesus, and it is John's questions that they are asking. So this entire scenario is about Jesus coming to us through the perplexity of John the Baptist. This is about us knowing with certainty exactly who Jesus Christ is through the perplexity of faith of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived up until the revealing of Jesus Christ in his own ministry. This is the greatest man up until the time, spiritually speaking, this is the greatest man up until the time when Jesus Christ himself walked the face of the earth and began his ministry. This is John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's greater than Moses, he's greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha, greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, greater than all of the minor prophets, the major prophets. He's greater than all of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is the man who was commissioned before birth to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is the one who was miraculously born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Remember that? Remember all that Jesus did back or all that God did in bringing about the birth of John, just turn back there for a moment so that we can have this on our minds. Notice in verse chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Zacharias is a priest. He's going throughout his priestly duties in, in the course of time. He's the one who has to go into the temple and offer sacrifices, and he's in the temple. The people are outside praying, and an angel shows up to Zacharias, speaks a few things to Zacharias. He's shocked by this. 
says Zacharias in verse 17, it's the son that you're going to have. He's going to go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to be like Elijah, even though he's greater than Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient and attitude of righteousness so as to make ready the people prepare for the Lord. Zacharias says to the angel, how will I know this? Talk about perplexity. How is this going to be? I'm an old guy. My wife is advanced in years. Obviously, she's beyond childbearing years. How is this going to happen? Perplexity beyond perplexity. I I hear your message. I'm not inclined to disbelieve what you said. You're a spiritual being telling me this, and yet here I am in this human reality going, how's this going to happen? The angel answers and said to him, well, uh, here's my answer. I, I, I'm Gabriel. I, I'm, I'm the one dispatched by God to you. I stand in the presence of God. I, I, I mean, th- this shouldn't be a perplexing thing for you. I've been sent to speak to you and to bring to you good news. This should be the confirmation. There should be no perplexity. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Why? Because you didn't believe my words. Shocking. Shocking. The need for trusting even without having all the answers. God saying to Zacharias through Gabriel, listen, uh, you want you want proof. I'll give you proof. Proof's coming, right? Nine months, you're going to see the proof of what I said, but in the meantime, you're not going to be able to tell anybody that. Trust me, Zacharias, even though you don't have all the answers, even though you're perplexed. You know what I call that? I call that the wall of worship. The wall of worship. You're at this place where you're perplexed about what's happening, something you read in Scripture. You're struggling with it in your own understanding. You're perplexed about that. I call that the wall of worship. The wall of worship. This is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist, the one who had seen Jesus come down to the Jordan River and had been baptized by John. And John hears the voice of God affirm Jesus as his son. No different than his father seeing an angel in the temple. This is John the Baptist who had seen the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus and who himself later would identify to his own disciples, this is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, this is John the Baptist, the man who says, I must decrease, he must increase. This is the cousin of Jesus. And he's asking, are you the expected one? Seems rather odd, doesn't it? But but let me say this morning that it ought not seem so odd. Because John is at the wall of worship in his heart. John is at that place where he's come up against 
a struggle. Why? Why is John there? Because John knows the Bible. John knows the Bible. He knew what the Old Testament said. John knew that the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah would be about the grace of God, that God would usher in the grace, His His grace upon the people. He knew Psalm 40. He knew what we read this morning. But he also knew from the Bible the necessity that God would also bring judgment upon the people. And both of those realities would come with the Messiah. God would bring grace. God would bring judgment. He knew that through the Messiah would come healing. That there would be compassion for the people. This this outpouring of God by way of compassion in a way that they had had not seen before. Salvation from sin. Atonement. That the captives would be set free, i.e. those who are spiritually captivated in their sin. They're stuck. They're struck there. They're dead in their sins. They would be set free from the bondage of their sins. A, A blessed kingdom would be set up. All an outflow of God's grace. And along with that, it was also prophesied that God was going to bring judgment. And yet, here's the situation that John is finding. Notice verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. All what things? All what things? All the things that were taking place through the ministry of Jesus. All that they had been seeing because they're part of this entourage, this crowd, even though they're disciples of John. John is in prison. They're watching Jesus. Jesus is carrying on in the ministry and everywhere He goes, the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord is being displayed as He is ministering to the people. You say, how so? Well, he, the sick are being healed. He's curing diseases. The lame are made to walk. The deaf are given brand new hearing. Those who can't speak are now able to speak, and even the dead are being raised. Remember, Jesus had just raised this young man who was being taken out to be buried. God's grace is being poured out in massive buckets, just as the Old Testament prophets had said. But as Jesus' ministry is expanding, John is locked up in prison. John's a distance down to the south. Why? Because John spoke the truth to all he encountered. John was fulfilling the exact ministry that God had given him to fulfill. John was doing what God had called him to do. And John could never be accused, not with any valid evidence, that he is a compromiser. No, even when it came to those in the highest positions of authority, John challenged their sin. John called it out. Those in the positions of authority could not escape the scrutiny of God's Word as John preached it and their lives were held accountable before a holy God. John said what God said. 
And John went about preaching and confronting sin. John was fulfilling his calling. He was preparing the way. And so because John told it like it is, he was locked up in prison. You remember, he had confronted Herod, the king, about the illicit relationship that he was having with his sister-in-law. Of course, Herod didn't like that, so in order to shut John up verbally, he shut him up literally in prison. It was a desolate prison down by the Dead Sea. Unfortunately, from time to time, John had visitors. They would come to him and report all that was taking place. And this is what we find in verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him all of these things. What was happening? Here's what we're finding. Here's what's going on. And so here is John in prison because he stood on the truth of the coming Messiah. Here is John who had preached the gospel, who had preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He knows and he believed what prophecy says about the coming Messiah. He knows what his Bible says. He has been teaching it to the people. He knows that Jesus would come with grace. But he also knows about judgment. He knows that there would be judgment to come. And as he hears all about the ministry of Jesus, he becomes more and more perplexed. More and more perplexed, not with unbelieving doubt, but with perplexing faith. Why? Because what he had heard about the ministry of the Messiah isn't quite lining up. What he had known from the Old Testament prophets isn't playing out the way he thought it was going to be played out. In fact, notice what he was preaching back in chapter 3. Notice what John is saying. Chapter 3, verse 16, John answered and said, right? They were, they were coming and wondering who he is. And John answers and says to them all, As for me, I baptize you, chapter 3, verse 16, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, I w- he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, notice, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here is John. He, he hears about Jesus. He hears what's going on with Jesus. John's in prison. He knows the truth can can divide. And yet John is asking himself, where's the winnowing fork? Where's the fire of judgment? Where's the setting up of the kingdom? So on the one hand, you have Jesus performing all these miracles, this massive outlay of the grace of God upon the people And that matched with what John knew about the Old Testament prophecies. That, that, that fell in line. Okay, yeah, grace is here. But what about the fire? What about judgment? What about burning the chaff with an unquenchable fire? None of that seems to be happening. Roman government's still in control. 
Wicked people are living in luxury and comfort all over the place. The religious establishment is arrogant and self-righteous. In fact, John even called them brood of vipers. So all of that is corrupt. There's corruption in the government. There's corruption with the people. There's corruption in the religious establishment. And John is saying, hey, and I'm sitting here in prison because I did what I was called to do. I know the truth. I've stood on the truth. But here I am. I still believe you're the guy, but are you fully that? Or should we expect someone else? I wonder John's perplexed. Notice verses 19 and 20, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, this is John who sends them. This isn't John sending them to verify in their own hearts because they have some perplexities. No, this is John's perplexity. John sends them to the Lord. Say this, are you the expected one or are we to look for someone else? And so the men do exactly that. They're not like the the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders in the previous events with the centurion servant that Jesus is going to heal and the centurion dispatches these Jewish leaders and they go and they say something totally different. No, this is John's servants and they go and they say exactly what John wants them to say. The men come to Jesus and they say, verse 20, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask this question. Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Remember, that isn't unbelief. It isn't disbelief. It is simply a question for clarification of understanding. John's faith is being stretched. In other words, are you the expected one who fulfills all of the prophecy that I know about? Or is there someone else that that we ought to be looking for also? Am I understanding the plan correctly? I see all of your acts of grace, but what about judgment? When does the winnowing happen? Is there somebody else that, that's going to follow on your footsteps? What, what's, are you the one who's going to do that? Uh, have I missed something? I, I'm perplexed. I don't, I don't have the answers to my perplexity as I sit here in prison. I, I'm at the wall of worship. This is so important for us, beloved. This is so important in the mind of John that he dispatches these two disciples to go to Jesus with his question. And seemingly... Seemingly, of course, God's providence is never by way of chance. God's details are never happening because God just goes, oh, hey, by the way, this happened when this happened. No, seemingly they arrive at the very time. Nothing's by coincidence. And yet they arrive at the very moment. They arrive at the time that Jesus is curing diseases, casting out demons, and causing the blind to see. Notice verse 21. At that very time... They came, they asked a question. At that very time, he cured many. 
Of what? Diseases. Those are sicknesses. People had a sicknesses just like we have sicknesses that, that they weren't going to die from. They weren't permanent ailments that they had, but they had sicknesses, these diseases, and then afflictions. Those are, those are more permanent kind of things. Leprosy and, and other diseases that are chronic and some of them fatal, many of them, because they didn't have the medical things. Jesus is curing the simple things. He's curing the difficult afflictions and He's even casting out evil spirits, giving sight to many who are blind. That would be nice, right? If we could just go to the eye doctor and we'd come back, we wouldn't need glasses. Even the seeming surgeries they do today that cure your, that give you eyesight where you don't need glasses, that fades over time. Jesus answered to John's question is to not give a direct answer. Don't you love that? God, I'm coming to you with questions. I got some questions, some specific questions, and God doesn't give the direct answer. Do you find that even kind of perplexing? I do. So often we are perplexed in our faith. So often we want clarity. We desire a direct answer. We don't like not knowing. We don't like standing out there without knowing all the details. And most of the time we're left at the wall of worship without clear answers. Just where we're left. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to these two guys who came from John in prison. He didn't say, hey, listen, you guys go and tell John that the theological realities about which he's wondering about are going to be fulfilled with A, B, C, D. Lay it out for John. I'm so compassionate for John. I I love John so dearly. I want him to know all the details. So this is the only thing that's going to help him. Listen, Jesus doesn't do any of that. All he does for John is simply say, listen, John, it's okay to be perplexed. It's okay for you to be perplexed, but know this, don't stay there. Don't stay there in your perplexity, even though you don't see it clearly, you continue to trust me. You just continue to trust me. When you're at the wall of worship, beloved, when you're at that wall, that's the answer. Trust me. Trust me. Notice with me how this unfolds. And let the implications of this challenge, let it, let it challenge your own heart Let it challenge your own perplexities within your own faith this morning. Allow it to encourage you to trust Jesus in spite of those perplexities. As we walk through this, and I already told you we're not going to get farther than just into verse 23, but I want us to see the way Jesus validates Himself. I want us to see the way Jesus validates himself and the ministry in order to help our perplexities. 
validation number one is this. This is his validation to John's questions. He doesn't answer it directly. This is his answer. Notice that Jesus responds with another shocking display of his power. Verses 21 through 23. The very moment he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, gave sight to the blind. And then he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up. That's what they've seen. Here's what you've heard. Or have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Some of your translations may say, Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. What is Jesus saying? He's simply saying, Don't be perplexed, John. I am fulfilling the very prophecies that you know. Don't be perplexed because you see grace being poured out, but not judgment. Don't let that cause you in your mind and your heart to stumble. I am fulfilling the very prophecies you know. Don't stay perplexed. Rest in knowing that I am exactly the one you know me to be, even though the details in your mind and heart are unclear. You say, what prophecies? What prophecies is Jesus talking about? What prophecies is John curious about? Prophecies given by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus is just emphasizing here in verses 22, in verse 22, really, he's emphasizing what was foretold by Isaiah. Go and tell him this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, poor have the gospel preached to them. There are at least four different parts of Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus is referring to. John, you're the greatest prophet, but you know the other prophets, and you know these in your mind and heart, so rest on them. Isaiah 29, verse 18 and 19, On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness their eyes, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 32, verses 3 and 4, Then the eyes of those who will see will not be blinded. The ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, Then then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the moot will shout for joy. Isaiah 61, verses 1-3, through The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Jesus sends the messengers back to John with experiential proof. Go tell them what you've seen. They've experienced this. They've they've seen the miracles firsthand that Jesus is doing. But more importantly, he sent them back to say to John, listen, get back in the Bible. Get back in the text and rest in what the text says. Exactly what we heard emphasized this morning when we were singing. Tim took us to Second Peter. Talking about Peter seeing the glory and wonder of God as he transfigured himself on the mountain with James and John. And yet Peter says, we have the word of God made more sure. Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what you saw. You see all this happening. The blind are actually seeing physically. The lame are walking physically. The lepers are being cleansed physically. The deaf are hearing physically. The dead are raised up physically. And yet spiritually, the poor, that is the poor in spirit, the broken, as we learned already in Luke's gospel, they have the gospel preached to them. More importantly than anything else, John, you need to get back to the word. Jesus sends these men back to John and says, yeah, tell them what you saw, but more importantly, tell them, get back in the Bible. Why? Because, beloved, the Bible is enough. The Bible's enough. Luke's going to tell a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16 when the rich man and Lazarus die. And of course, it's not the Lazarus that was Mary and Martha's brother. But it's a parable. Poor goes into the bosom of Abraham, into heaven, the rich man who lived his life on earth and his riches, his luxury, not suffering at all, is now in hell. And he says, Father Abraham, can I send somebody back to tell my brothers so to warn them not to come to this place? You know what it says in that parable? No, no. They have the law and the prophets. They have the Word of God. They don't need to see someone rise from the dead. They don't need to see some personal miracle before them because even though they see that, they will not believe. If they will not believe the law and the prophets, they will never believe. We have the Word of God, beloved. The Bible is enough. In our perplexities, the Bible is enough. So here's the principle for us. Here's the principle. When you come to the wall of worship, when you're struggling in your mind and your heart and the perplexities are there and you have your understanding being challenged, here's the answer. Worship God for who God is, even though you don't understand everything, and get into the Word of God. 
I love this. I love that Jesus doesn't give a specific answer about the whys in the mind of John. Jesus knows what John's perplexed about. Jesus understands all of that. He is, after all, in his divinity, omniscient. But he doesn't give John all the specific answers. Why isn't the winnowing fork being used? Why isn't fire coming down to consume your enemies? Why, 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 why? That's the perplexities in our mind. Not one answer to the why. In other words, I think this is so helpful for us if we're listening. So helpful. The answer to what perplexed John from Jesus was simply this. Believe what the Bible says as it says it. Believe what the Bible says as it says it. Notice verse 23. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The word stumble is a word that causes us to get a picture in our minds. Maybe someone tripping over something. You're walking down the sidewalk in a tree there and the root comes up and you're not really paying attention so you trip and you stumble over that object in your path. Uh, the word actually is stronger than that in the original language. It's where we get our word scandal. The word is is scandalizomai. It's a word for scandalizing something. It's really, it's really the idea of enticing someone to sin. You're, you're scandalizing them. You're, you're causing someone to sin, causing a person to distrust or to desert the one in whom they ought to obey and trust. That's what the idea is. Listen, don't let your perplexities be such that when you're standing at the wall of worship, they become a disbelief. Scandalize your very life. Trip you up so that you fall. Jesus says, blessings come to those who aren't scandalized in their hearts about me. That is simply to say that just because we are perplexed by how God is doing what He is doing doesn't mean that we ought to stay perplexed about how God is doing what He's doing. Let me say it this way. It's okay to have doubt. It's okay to be perplexed and, and to be Doubting to be wondering, to be scrutinizing and, 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 and thoughtful about those things, but you don't want to stay there. You don't want to remain there. When you come to that wall of perplexity, just trustfully worship God. Jesus says to these messengers, so that they'll say to John, what he wants John to hear. And Luke records it here for Theophilus so that Theophilus will know what God wants Theophilus to hear so that Theophilus is certain in his heart what he's been taught about Jesus. Theophilus, you might have some confusion, some perplexities about what you've learned about Jesus. Don't stay there. 
Trust him. Trust him. And we have it here in the gospel given to us by the Spirit of God who was carried, who is the one who carried Luke along in order to put these things down so that we too this morning would have certainty about Jesus Christ. So that if we're perplexed about things in our own faith, in our own life, the things we read in Scripture at times, we don't stay there. We trust God and get back into the book. Blessed are those who keep from stumbling over Jesus. In other words, it's okay to be perplexed. It's okay. Not okay to remain there. Listen, John, you and anyone else like you will be blessed if you don't stay doubting. Because you find some perplexity in the way I'm accomplishing my plan. So beloved, when we come to that place, consider the wall of worship. Consider the wall of worship. Don't remain perplexed. Worship Jesus for who He is, even though you may not fully understand all the details. I find this very comforting, don't you? I find that very comforting. I mean, here's the one who's the forerunner of Christ. The one who has miraculously been conceived and divinely sent before Jesus to prepare the way for us to believe in Jesus. This is John the Baptist. He is a man who had such intimate theological privilege in that he knew exactly what his calling was all of his life. And he was even told by God who the Messiah would be. Here's the guy who dispatches his own disciples and says, even before he's in prison, there's the Lamb of God. There he is. That's the one. He takes away the sins of the world. There's Jesus. And yet, when Jesus is carrying out the very ministry that Jesus is called to do, John's wondering. John's taken even in his own faith to that wall of worship. He says, is this it? Is this how it's supposed to go? That's comforting to me. There's a whole lot I get perplexed about. John's not the only one who's ever been perplexed. Not the only one who goes, really? Is that that how God's going to do that? I didn't see that coming. I mean, we think about that, even in our theological understanding, right? Is man totally depraved? Let me think about that. Hmm. I mean, can't there be some good in man? After all, I mean, he does what seems to be good things at times. Is he totally depraved? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. 
Everyone's dead. They're not partially alive. They're not breathing spiritually. They're dead. They need to be made alive. So yeah, they're totally depraved. Well, is election the doctrine in which salvation happens? Is election unto salvation right? I mean, God is loving, and surely a loving God wouldn't send someone to hell, would He? I mean, doesn't that seem like a contradiction? That's so perplexing to me, people say. Well, what does the Bible say? What does it say? The Bible says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. God elects. No one deserves. And yet God graciously chooses to save. Was salvation in Christ alone, or, or, or is it Christ plus me? I mean, do I contribute even in the smallest of ways? Is it me? I mean, after all, doesn't Jesus say at times when I read through the Gospels, people who get healed and these things, your faith has made you well? Was it their faith? It seems that Jesus is saying it was their faith. What's the Bible say? It's by grace that you've been saved. And that not of yourself. It's by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. What's the what's not of yourself? The faith. It's not yours. It was given to you. And yet Jesus, who graciously gives the gift, even at times acknowledges the fact that we're exercising the faith he gave us. I've heard people say, I can't believe in Jesus if my physical life isn't fixed. I can't believe in Jesus, particularly a Jesus that has failed me so many times in my life. We are often saying, I don't think it would be like this if. I don't think it would be like this if. There's a danger in those things. There's a danger in thinking like that. There's a danger that lies in the reality. Far too often we stay there. There's not necessarily a danger in having perplexities, but there's a danger in staying there and nursing those perplexities. We remain in our state of perplexity or doubt instead of trusting what God has given to us in His Word. And we use that that. Simple statement. I know the Bible says this, but, but, and we start to define life by our experiential things that are outside rather than by the objective truth of Scripture. You know what we do? You know what we're doing when we do that? What we're doing when we do that is that we are stumbling over Jesus. We're stumbling over Jesus. Jesus says, don't remain there. Blessed is he who does not take offense of me. Don't remain there. Trust me, even though you don't fully understand. Trust me, even though there's perplexities in your mind. You see, beloved, when we are at the wall of worship, you know what we need to do? We need to just worship Jesus. Just Thank Him for who He is. Trust Him 
for what He's doing. Even though there are times it makes no sense to us. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 through 28 says this. We'll end with this. The Apostle Paul said, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Don't you love that? Man spouts off his wisdom. Ah, we're the smartest thing since creation began. And yet, through the wisdom of men, through the logic of men, through the conundrums of men's minds and all the sophistry that men can come up with, with all of his higher education and everything else, he cannot come to understand the wisdom of God. Can't know God through that wisdom. Why? Because in the wisdom of God, God made it that way. You can't get there through your own wisdom. And so since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs, it's experiential stuff. The Greeks, wisdom, that's higher learning stuff. That's not us. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, right? Called because you're chosen, you're elect, to those, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now why does it work like that? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul says, look at yourself. You want some experiential understanding? Look at yourselves. There's not many wise, according to worldly standards among us, Certainly not many powerful, not many who were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul says, listen, the wisdom of God is far beyond our understanding. Far beyond us. You, you think you shouldn't be perplexed about something? Listen, you're dealing with God. That alone is perplexing in itself. We think we, we walk to the wall of worship? Listen, we start at the wall of worship and we stay at the wall of worship. Jesus says, blessed is those who do not take offense at me. So today, beloved, today, especially in our over-social media stressed lives, today, in our contemporary culture that denies all things true, we need to live out this beatitude. We need to live out this blessed is He beatitude and not stumble over Jesus.
There's a second validation here. Second validation. It doesn't begin till verse 24. Jesus challenges this crowd. Challenges them simply about being curious. It's a challenge for us too, but we'll get to it next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious God to us. That you would condescend to us, that you would you would come to us in our foolishness such a way in which we could know you, that you would grant us faith, that you would choose us when we don't deserve it. You would grant us faith that we might believe upon you. Within that faith, we have an understanding driven by the Holy Spirit in us that we can understand your word, and yet we will never exhaust your mind. We can understand what you have given us from your word as we put our attention to it. And yet we will never fully exhaust your mind. So perplexities come. And we we are there at the wall of worship in our perplexities. Lord, I pray, I pray that we won't stay perplexed. That we will trust you even though those perplexities exist, even though we're there and even though you don't fully grant us the clarity that we hope and would wish for at times. You still tell us, don't stumble over me. Trust me and follow me. May we do that unto your glory, by means of your spirit, because of your grace and mercy upon us. May others see in us that childlike faith that follows and wonder about the hope that lies within us. Thank you for your word, for it is indeed more sure than anything we've ever seen. In Christ's name we pray, amen.